0: Lord's Prayer. Uh, The wonderful prayer that we all know probably, that's in Matthew chapter 6, our Father which art in heaven. Uh, Of late in church history has been called the Lord's Prayer. However, when you look at that context, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, Gay, is really the Lord teaching the disciples how to pray. It says, when you pray, don't do like the religious hypocrites and pray in public and be showy and use big words. It says, when you pray, go by yourself, nobody sees you but God, and pray kinda like this. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, not my name, thy kingdom come, not my ship come in, thy will be done, not my will be done, that kind of thing. He's giving us a pattern in that prayer. This prayer though, Riley, is the Lord praying. Mitzi, he's praying intently. And the cool thing is, based on the miracle of inspiration of Scripture, Class A miracle, and the miracle of the preservation of Scripture, Class B miracle, and the non-miracle, but the hard work of good Bible translation. Anybody got a Greek text on their lap? If you got an English Bible, somebody's worked hard to translate that for you. Based on all those dynamics behind the scene, it's as if we're getting into a time machine. Watch this, Dennis going to the slopes of the Mount of Olives and listening to Jesus who's praying in Aramaic and hearing him in English. That's, that's a lot. God's already done a lot just to give us this, this prayer. But this is Jesus really praying himself. And so we're going to be able to sit next to him and learn about how prayer works based on how he prayed in the real Lord's Prayer. But before we dive into this chapter this morning, let's pray that we'll be teachable to God's word and that uh, we also want to pray for uh, guidance, protection, and success for those who protect and serve us and allow us to meet uh, in a place like this without fear of imminent terrorist attack or criminal attack. So let's pray for our peace officers, our firefighters, and our active military people, okay? And uh, Michael, lead us in prayer in that direction, would you please? I usually to try to warm up your capacity for abstract thinking, start with some kind of semi humorous com- comedy list or cartoon. Uh, that's as close as I'm going to get because I want to use the time today to really focus on the dynamics of prayer. So before we start listening and learning from Jesus praying in the real Lord's Prayer, let me just say a couple things about prayer. Uh, three fast facts about Jesus and prayer. Number one, The Lord Jesus concentrated on prayer. I mean, he made prayer a priority. He sometimes would pray all night. He prayed before major decisions and now awaiting his arrest, and he knows that the goon squad is coming from the temple police to get him, he's praying. So he he concentrated on prayer. And if our Lord concentrated on prayer, that should teach us some things about prayer. Number two, he consciously depended on prayer. The whole deal is if God's got a plan, why pray? Is just uh, an imaginary disconnect because prayers are part of the process God's included in His program to get to other endpoints. And Jesus realizes some of the things he prays about in this prayer are going to happen, but he also realizes that he's got a responsibility to pray in that direction, and that's part of the deal too. So our Lord concentrated on prayer. He consciously depended on prayer, and therefore he teaches us as believers to concentrate on and to depend upon prayer. So uh, sometimes prayer is kind of the weakest link or the missing link. You forgive the terminology there in too many Christian lives. And uh, this happens to a lot of people in ministry because, you know, especially those who write out their prayers and want to get it exactly right when they pray and I've known people with that conviction, and I respect that. I personally like more spontaneity when I pray as a pastor, but I'm not opposed to really thinking about something I want to say in a prayer. But when you talk to some of these people and you find out they practice the wording <laughs> you know, for a week to get ready, I think you're losing some spontaneity there, but that's just me. This is my working definition of prayer, having looked at it for the last 35 years, but this is kind of where I, I am if you want to know what prayer is from my perspective Prayer is not a crowbar where we're able to pry things out of God's hands. You know, God's not a cosmic Coke machine. Push the right buttons, he has to give you what you want. Look at the model prayer, the example prayer. It doesn't sound like that, what we call the Lord's Prayer. Uh, To me, Christian prayer is a grace channel of communication with God by which believers, Amanda Birch, Pat Fleming, Eric Ward, Brad McCoy, seek and submit to his will, and which God uses as a part of the process through which his sovereign plan is worked out in time and space. And here's the thing, Olga, you're never going to have enough information to legitimately second-guess God. But as Jesus said, at all times people ought to pray and not to give up. Okay? So I never give up. I believe in miracles but sometimes God has greater miracles beyond the obvious miracle he, we, which he'd do. Now, speaking of miracles, <laughs> um, last week, in biblical context, talking about, the, talking about the difference between joy and happiness, the Bible never commands happiness. The Bible never commands happiness, but it does command joy. Joy is better than happiness, Happiness is overrated. Happiness is based on happenings. And based on that fact, I can tell you today, you're looking at a very happy man. I said last week, if we could pull this off, you know, Coach, all's, all's forgiven. All, all is forgiven. I think we ought to give him a raise. Uh, so anyway, that's all I'm going to say. You can't believe how difficult that was to say. But... Uh, uh, let me suggest there are two basic kinds of prayer, uh, spontaneous and structured. A really nice example of that is Nehemiah. He's working for the king, and he's going to ask for an extended leave of absence so he can rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. And so uh, in the first chapter, you've got this long, beautiful prayer that he prays as he's uh, getting ready and psyching himself up to ask the king for the leave of absence. Because just as the cupbearer, even though it's a very responsible position, for him to go in without a summons is a potential capital crime, among other things. So he prays this beautiful prayer, this beautiful structured prayer. And you might miss it if you read Nehemiah 1 too quickly, Janet. But it says, I was summoned to the king, or I went into the king, and I prayed and I asked the king. So he, he shot up a fast, spontaneous prayer, like, Lord, please don't let him kill me. Now, you know, and, and then he kind of did his pitch. So those are the two broad kinds of prayer. Spontaneous prayer is what Paul talks about when he says, pray without ceasing. That doesn't mean you have to be in whatever your favorite prayer posture is 24 7. And I know Gene uh, Shallot and I once had an extended prayer meeting in Puebla, Mexico on a hard concrete floor where we're all on our knees and we realized that gringos can't pray that way for very long until the pain threshold increases, especially if you have a bad right knee. But spontaneous prayers are more impromptu. They tend to focus on short term needs. And when we're told to pray without ceasing, I think that just means you keep your radio on all day, right? Carol knows she doesn't have to be in church or at the well the last Friday of every month when we have the city prayer time, to be in prayer. We need to be spontaneously praying constantly. But structured prayer is something that's more organized and focuses on both short-term and long-term needs. And let me suggest you have a prayer aid, probably in your Bible. Anybody got a bulletin? Yeah, you know what? This, this prayer list... Now here's the bulletin, it's four pages. Page three and four are basically all prayer requests, praises for answered prayer, petitions for God's will in prayer. And I tell you what, if you want to uh, jumpstart your your prayer life the end of this year, beginning next year, just make it a discipline to use this thing as a prayer list at least a couple of times a week. Uh, some people, you know, it's a bridge too far to do it every day because there is a lot of stuff here, and, and you're not intimately acquainted with each one of these people. But if you believe prayer is important like Jesus did and like he modeled, then when you're praying for somebody you may never meet, like Aubrey's cousin Janice, uh, you know that your prayers are part of the process God's decreed to get to other endpoints. And so you realize your prayer is significant, even if you don't know the person. And if, if in the bulletin we spell the name wrong or get the ailment wrong, God knows the ailment, the room number, and the city. So if we get... And you know, if we put Janice in Cincinnati and she's in Lubbock, God will be able to figure that out. But we try to be as accurate as possible. So uh, that's one way you could really organize your structured time of prayer. And I think it's really important just as a discipline to decide on a fairly regular basis, not just on Thanksgiving or next time we've got a health crisis in our family or financial crisis. I'm going to several times a week, preferably every day, have some kind of structured prayer. People call it a quiet time. Uh, I think the pray without ceasing really isn't the quiet time. I think there's something different there, and I think it's helpful. Uh, Some people like to wake up early. Some people do it at lunch. Some people do it at the end of the day. David Brainerd, one of the early American missionaries to the Indians, uh, even though he was in New England, would pray like for two hours every morning, even in the snow. He'd wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning, go out in the snow. When he was done praying, all the snow had melted because he was so fervent in his prayer. Now, a lot of people who preach on prayer seminars emphasize that, and I think that's great. However, what they won't tell you is that David Brainerd died of 27 of health-related issues, probably due to exposure. So it's not necessarily (coughs) uh, necessary for you to be out in the snow for your structured prayer time. It's something I've used for a long time, and I use it every day. So, hey, uh, Clay, think about using this acronym. One cool way to organize your structured prayer time is use the acronym CATS. And since I don't like CATS, it makes it very easy for me to remember the acronym CATS. I'm sorry all you cat lovers out there. but uh, uh, C stands for confession. I think it's important for Christians as Jesus taught the guys at the very beginning of the Upper Room Discourse, chapter 13, you've taken the bath of salvation, that's great, but let me wash your feet because you're going to leak some oil. So you definitely, before your, your focused, structured prayer time, want to... Rather, and I know it's easy for me to think about the person who disapp- disappointed me last week or who said this about me and it wasn't true and did this other thing. And It's really easy for me to see everybody else's weaknesses as I see them, especially my wives and kids. But this is all about me coming clean on where I am spiritually. So I confess, uh, 1 John 1, 9, what does that say? If we confess our sins as believers, he's faithful and just to forgive us as far as our fellowship, our connection with him. So I'm going to start there myself. A is adoration. Now what does that mean? Before we give God a list of stuff to do for us, Dennis, I would say we probably ought to praise Him and focus and get centered on who and what He is. Now there's a very famous Swedish word, turgliv, which can help you remember the major attributes of God. Uh, That first part looks like tattoo, but it's not. Um, T-T-T-O-O-O-J-R-S-L-I-V-E. What does that mean, Henry? I'm going to tell you. God is true. What does that mean? Not truthful, that's later. He's real, okay? And he's the source of all reality. You know, just knock on wood, not for luck, but to realize those atoms were created by God. God is real. He's true. He's triune. What does that mean? He's personal, and in some way nobody understands and nobody would invent. No human mind would invent the Trinity because nobody understands the Trinity, Riley. God exists as one God in how many persons? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Uh, God is transcendent. And what does that mean? That means he's bigger than time-space. He's outside of time-space. Okay? He created time-space, but he's outside of time-space. That's the T part. And you just go through that in prayer, and you, you, you think about those attributes, and you pray them back to God, and you reflect on who he is. OOO stands for God is omniscient. He knows everything. Uh, when I was 20... I had hair when I needed it. He knew how many hairs were on my head. It was a fairly large number. Now that I'm a little bit older, it's a much smaller number, but he knows the exact number of hairs on my head. He knows every single thing, both actual, po- possible, potential, hypothetical, everything. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. What does that mean? Do not say God can do anything. It's wrong. It's heretical. It's sinful. It's blasphemous to say God can do anything. God can't lie. God can't die. God can't break a promise. God can't make a rock so big he himself can't lift it because that would deny his omnipotence, right? He's too smart to build a rock uh, that's bigger than 10 universes, although if he did, it'd be weightless, so it wouldn't be a problem. So God's omniscient. He's omnipotent, which doesn't mean he can do anything. It means there's no finite limit to God's power. That's what omnipotence means. So the creator of the universe, ex nihilo, out of nothing, uh, is not... Uh, intimidated by your current crisis. So God's omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. What does that mean? That means he's everywhere present in time-space all at the same time. Transcendence means he's outside of it. Uh, Omnipresent means he's everywhere present and it's not like if the universe is like a piece of bread, it's not like he's spread out like a pat of butter on the bread. He's a hundred percent present everywhere but he visibly manifests his presence in a real place called capital H, heaven, right? So that's the T-T-T-O-O-O part. I'm praying this, and you pray this, man, it really supercharges your prayer life. J-R-S is justice, righteousness, and sovereignty. Now, one thing people who've seen this for the first time say, Eric's a good theological thinker, you're wondering, where's holiness? There's no H in the whole system, and you've left God's holiness out. Well, actually, Theologians will tell you that holiness, which kadosh or hagias in the Old New Testament, means to be distinct and unique. Uh, And in a moral sense, it refers to its composite of God's justice and His righteousness. God's justice; He's fair; He's no respecter of persons. However, fairness is not necessarily doled out in the 70 years you live on planet Earth or the whole length of human history. God's fair. When, every, when all the relevant data is added up, which includes eternity, which includes not just in the world, but out of this world. And apart from that, life isn't fair. Just get over it, like George Roundtree used to say. <laughs> world War II vet. Uh, God's just, he's fair, he's righteous, he's inherently morally perfect. One argument the new atheists use is, all those rules in the Bible are just social constructs. And if God invented them, where were they? No. The, all the moral expressions of Scripture are expressions of God's inherent eternal character. God's inherently morally perfect, um, which is why we need a Savior, because we're not. And then S means God's sovereign. He has a plan. He didn't consult you about the plan. He's not going to consult you about the plan. But he's happy with the plan, and we need to be happy with him. Okay? And the most important lesson of theology, Derek, is there's only one God, and you're not him. So that's, that's really important. So now, L-I-V-E, uh, L is Homer's favorite divine attribute, and it's probably all of our favorite attributes. God is love, right? Uh, but it's not a sentimentality, it's seeking his creature's highest good, consistent with his character. Uh, I stands for immutable, which means he doesn't change in his character. God has a zero potential. Realize that, Shannon? God has zero potential. Uh, God never goes. I never knew that. I never noticed that before. I never knew that. He never goes. Whoops, you know, doesn't happen. Uh, he is uh, unchangeable in his character. Veracity—that's where truth comes in. He and watch this. God reveals himself in the Word of God and also the world of God in Scripture and in science. And any and all conflicts with Scripture and science. Watch this. Or either you've misinterpreted the scripture or you've misinterpreted the science or you haven't correlated them correctly. Okay, That's all it is. All truth is God's truth. Jesus is Lord of all. And Jesus, God affirms his reality both through the creation and also through scripture. Uh, and then E is eternal life. He gives us everlasting life. Eternal is infinity both ways, which don't try to even think about that because it gives you a headache. Okay, so, wow, you know, when I try to do structured prayer, it gets so boring. If you confess your sins honestly, you're very convicted. You walk through thinking about major characteristics of God. It's not boring. That's never boring. Uh, Sometimes it gets boring praying for other people's prayer needs, but it never gets boring. (laughs) I'm just telling you what the truth is. Okay, so we're going from C-A-T, Thanksgiving. When is Pastor Brad going to let us start asking God for stuff? That comes at the end, you know? But I'm talking about your structured prayer. I'm not talking about when you're waiting in the ER. Uh, many years ago, uh, Jamie driving, uh, Michael uh, and uh, Ryan were coming back from an OSU game and we lost. And uh, right on the outskirts of town, wet weather, he hit a wet spot, Tabor can relate to this, ran into a telephone pole backwards. And we ended up in the ER, what was it? Two o'clock in the morning, one o'clock in the morning. And, Hey, you know what? I'm a teetotaler. I don't drink. I'm not going to tell you Jesus turned water into Kool-Aid. But uh, I don't, just, Coke Zero is so much better than anything with alcohol in it. I, I don't drink it. But, uh, you know, I'm not naive. I know some parents think their kiddies could never do anything wrong, and the coach is always wrong, and the teacher is always wrong, and the pastor is always wrong. I just assume they probably got some beer and he got drunk, okay? Praise God we got up there. There was no beer. There's no alcohol. They just hit a, a slick spot, and a police officer investigating it said, it's like that happens regularly right here in this area, and Tabor knows how that feels. So, um, But I remember uh, uh, I was going to make some point about Jamie getting that car right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know what it was. So once we go to the hospital with them and they all go get checked out, you know, I didn't go through the CATS thing right then. I had done that earlier in the day, but then I'm just shooting up spontaneous prayers, you know, and so understand what I'm saying. Uh, Thanksgiving, you know, Thanksgiving is great once a year. Thanksgiving is better. And I think that putting that into your structured prayer life, whether you put it third or first or last, is helpful, okay? Uh, In fact, Eric, Word of God tells you, live with Ray in an understanding way and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, lest your prayers be hindered. You better do that, my man. If you fail to appreciate one of the greatest gifts God's ever given to you, probably short of your salvation, why is he going to be excited about giving you other stuff you're not going to appreciate, right? So I think it's very important before we start giving God the the to-do list, and I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek, but just what we want him to do, Uh, We we need to praise him for what he's already done, right? And then S is supplication. That's just a fancy word for petitions. But C-A-T-S sounds a lot better than C-A-T-P. So I'm going to call it supplications in that context. And again, you can look at the bulletin uh, for specific things to pray about there. And I'm sure all of us have a lot of things. I'd say pray for others and pray for yourself. But... We're going to look at Jesus' prayer here, and I think it's important for us to get a feel for what prayer is, and that's kind of a 15-minute seminar on what prayer is as I see it. I want you to notice now, we've been working through the Upper Room Discourse where Jesus is teaching the disciples how they conspiracy fellowship with him after he's no longer physically walking around with them anymore. Uh, and we've been working on that for several months now. We're going to come now to chapter 17, and boom, and um, We've only got one more week in this uh, discourse, Lord willing, because we're going to do the first part today and then uh, finish next week. But we have a pattern for fellowship with Christ. It's not bossing people around and critiquing people. It's washing their feet. Principles which circle uh, focus on one term, one concept, of abiding Christ. And now prayer for fellowship. And it's really climaxed next week where we see the importance of oneness with Christ and with other Christians, even of other denominations. But uh, the idea at the very heart of the Ephraim discourse is believers are to abide in Christ. That's how we spiritually fellowship with him, Katie, even though he's physically manifesting his presence at the right hand of the Father. And that's recognizing and responding from the heart to the one who has saved us so that out out of awe, love, respect, we give him a life of loving obedience and never notice how wonderful we are or how much we're giving up because it's all about our love and devotion to him. Okay, Now, The Gospel of John, the whole book, 21 chapters, 90 different times says the terms for receiving eternal life, the interest in Christian life, is to believe in Christ. To believe in Christ is not just mental assent, it's active receptive trust where someone who says, I am a sinner, I can't fix it, Jesus can because he died for my sins and rose again, and I want him to. That's what active receptive trust is. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, those who believe on his name. And Jesus uh, in John, John 3.16 talks about whoever believes on him shall not perish lake of fire, final death, but has everlasting zoe. There's two major terms for life in New Testament Greek. Bios. I wonder what English word we get from bios. Biology? Zoe. Zoe means spiritual life. It's everlasting life. And at the moment of faith in Christ, God the Holy Spirit imparts eternal life in the believing sinner, okay? But we're gonna be looking at chapter 17, the last portion of this, where we go from pattern principles to prayer, and we'll look at the first couple of verses today. Uh, but the bottom line, I think, of this passage is the importance Jesus placed on prayer underscores the importance of prayer. Uh, the passage breaks down like this. We've got a top bun, a bottom bun, meets in the middle. Now, the top bun, Jesus prays that God the Father would restore his heavenly glory. It says the same essential thing for emphasis at the bottom bun and then the meat in the middle is Jesus prays that through him, human beings who believe can enjoy heavenly glory. Okay? Let's look at verse 1 through 5. Talk, look at the top bun, or look at the... That hamburger structure for that, that's what I meant. Okay, whatever that means. Uh, that was a long introduction, wasn't it? But the, the body's going to be short today, trust me. Look at chapter 17, verse 1. Jesus, Jesus spoke these things. What are these things? Well, everything he said since chapter 13, but especially the burning statement where he says in 1633, these things I've spoken to you about, had a fellowship with me after I'm physically gone from you, That in me you may have peace, Irene, some kind of stability despite the instability of the world. In the world you will have philipsis, pressure and stress, but take courage of overcome the world. That's one of those promises nobody wants to claim. In the world you will have tribulation, right? So after Jesus spoke those things, especially memorable to the disciples at this point is, in the world we're going to have tribulation and you're leaving? And lifting up his eyes to heaven. Now, notice, the Scripture never gives one kind of prayer posture. Modern Americans like to bow our heads, close our eyes, and hold our hands together in public, which is great because it minimizes distractions. I'm all for it. But Jesus, a lot of times, prays with his eyes open looking up. And here's another example. Lifting up his eyes to heaven in prayer, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, even as, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. So he's talking about uh, uh, anticipating the dynamics of what's about to happen. And he, he talks about some of these things in this prayer as if they've already happened, just out of certainty. But there's the upper room discourse. He's praying just before he gets arrested. The next morning he's crucified. What happens three days later with the resurrection? What happens 40 days after that? The Roman Catholics have emphasized this a lot more than we have. The Ascension is where Jesus bodily returns to earth in his resurrection body, and his whole life and ministry are formally validated, uh, in almost like a coronation, uh, inauguration kind of a thing. And he's balling all that up, and he's praying in light of all that as if it's already happened. Look at the meat in the middle, verse 3. This is eternal life, that they, the ones who believe, may know you. It's relational. It's not about religion, not about rituals, it's not even about baptism or promises or walking in the aisle or raising a hand or signing a card or joining a church. That they may know you. You come to to know Christ through faith and then by abiding in Him. Uh, The only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work. Now, you know, a big part of the mission of Christ was to live a perfect, righteous life up to the apex of all this, but he's balling all that up uh, into one, it's kind of uh, one gnomic conception and saying, hey, here we are on the threshold and all this is about to start and and he says, I've I've done my mission. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. What's all that about? Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. In his incarnation, that Angie correctly emphasized was so important, joy of the world, the second person of the Trinity took on humanity without ceasing to be deity. We got one person with how many natures? Full deity, full humanity. But the Gospel of John, go back to chapter one, starts where Jesus was before creation. And in John 17, now he's saying, Hey, as I accomplish the work of redemption, I'm praying for my session, my glorification when I finish the work you're giving me. And he's saying it as if it's already a done deal because he's going to do it. John chapter 1, in the beginning. Does that sound familiar? Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, Elohim, plural in Hebrew. Interesting in Hebrew. But here we're in New Testament. In the beginning was the word. Halagos already was. Halagos, the word, was the title for Jesus there. In the beginning, the Word already was. How can a person here called Halagas, we know he's Jesus, exist before creation? He has to be transcendent. He has to be outside of time-space. That's that's how. He's got to be deity. He's the second person, the eternal trinity. In the beginning, the Word already was. And the Word, this title for Christ, we know it's a title for Christ in verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory... This is the person of Christ that we knew. John's talking about in verse 14. Here he's saying, the Word was with God the Father. Before creation, the Word was full deity like God the Father. He was in the beginning with God the Father, and he was the active agent of creation. Jesus Christ was. All things came into being through him. Apart from him, nothing came into being has come into being. In him was Zoe. What's Zoe? Not bios. Zoe. Spiritual, eternal life. And Ha-Zoe hey, was the light of men. He's the word. He's the life. He's the light. Which one is he, Eric? Is Jesus the word, or is he the life, or is he the light? It's all three of them, and a lot more. And John says, and the light keeps on shouting in the darkness, and the darkness did not understand it or overcome it. That term can use, be used both those ways. That kind of thing is, go back to 17, verse 5. Sometimes we feel sorry for ourselves because we have to do something we don't want to do or it's difficult for us. Think of all Jesus gave up just to get here. And rather than being born in a palace, in a jewel-encrusted crib, where was he born? Didn't impress the Greek-Roman mindset at all. Not at all, you know? He's born in a stable. They put him in a cattle trough. You couldn't make it up. That's what happened. So he's anticipating... Returning the glory, not so he can get his glory back so much, but just that the mission, the salvific mission, will be complete. And rather than being saved on credit, this is the the cross of Christ. The Old Testament folks were saved by faith in the promises about the Messiah. They were saved on credit. Uh, those of us on this side of the cross were saved by the provision of the Messiah, and that happens as Christ receives his glory back. So that's very important. Now, um, first things first. Let me just say this in passing. When you read those verses, the stuff he's talking about, some of which hasn't happened yet, but he's saying it as if, if it happened because it's so certain in his mind it's going to happen, but he's also praying about it, okay? The idea of God's got a plan is going to happen anyway, I don't need to pray, is not the way Jesus thought. And I'm, I'm just not, I'm not at a pay grade where I can say, well, he prayed for stuff that was all going to happen, but I can't. You know? And really, at one level, everything's going to happen. There's no, no surprises to God. Now look at verses 6 through 19. He's praying for himself in the first five verses. Now he's praying uh, for the 11, the 11 believing apostles. In first verses 6 through 10, Jesus prays thanking the Father for the 11 apostles. I love this passage, Derek, because so many of us preachers especially, and I've done this, Ken, I know, will find something really particularly dumb, say Peter, one of the disciples does or says, and we like to camp on that. And we do that in part because people like to realize the apostles weren't perfect because none of us are, and we make dumb no mistakes, certainly I do. Uh, so it's one thing to kind of bash the apostles as a popular uh, sport you know, for Christians. But, and, and, and the Lord several times has to go like basically, I can't believe you guys did that again, or here's the thing, he has to correct them. But when he's thinking just generally about who they are and what they've done, he's so complimentary It almost brings tears to my eyes. I've kind of gotten used to it now because I noticed that years ago. I just can't believe what a generous description he has and concept he has. And some of us are very picky and some of us are very hard on ourselves. And if I do, uh, part of it is baseball. You know, baseball has a lot of failure. Now, whether you're a pitcher or a hitter, I mean, you can make the Hall of Fame by getting hits, base hits, 30% of the time. You fail 70 percent of the time and you're Famous if over stand of fifteen years in big leagues you've you've succeeded thirty percent of the time, right? So life's full of failure. But I'm one of those people that you know if I got hundred things to do and don't do the hundredth one I kick myself or I do it and my happy with it, I kick myself. That's just kind of the way I am. And so it's really neat to hear what he says about his guys here because he could pick out all kinds of dumb things they've done, including the fact they're about to scatter like chickens as soon as the goons show up in about ten minutes. But he says, well, look at this. I love this. I have manifested your name to the men who you gave me out of the earth. He's looking at Peter, James, and John over there. Uh, They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, you know what? It'd be easy to pick at that and say, no, they didn't. He's talking generally, okay? When we're told an elder is to be above reproach, that's not sinless perfection. It's a righteous direction, okay, for that job description, Jesus is saying, hey, in general, these guys have kept my word. There's a lot of specific exceptions, but, man, that's a very generous description, isn't it? You know, moms do that. Moms are good at that. Not necessarily mine, but, uh, <laughs> but sorry, Mom. I, yeah, when, my, when my nephew, Josh, who's now in the Navy, was going to take up golf, she said, hey, Brad, you know, Josh is going to play golf on the golf team. I said, really? See, I had been captain in an all-district and all that many years ago. Uh, and uh, this is on the phone. And I said, well, he's going out, out for the golf team win Next week. Well, he's never played golf before. No, but he's going to take a lesson. And uh, I said, oh, wow. Okay, well, good luck on that. Uh, and I said, well, you told him you, his uncle, me, was uh, all district and uh, captain of the golf team, right? He said, no, I didn't tell him that, but I told him about the time you stole that gum from the grocery store. <laughs> so, you know, so the Lord could have been saying, hey, these guys stole gum from the grocery store. But he's saying these guys have kept, you kept my word, kept your word. I just love that. They've kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. That I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. I totally believe that. For the, even though they have doubts and fears. For the words which you gave me I've given to them, and they received them. They received my word. Yeah. And truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. Specifically here, not for the world, not for the set of unsaved, unbelieving people, but of those who you've given me, for they are yours and all things uh, that are mine are yours and yours are mine and I have been glorified in them. Did you hear what he said, Jenny? He's looking at Peter, James, and John with all the oil they've leaked and he said, I've been glorified by these guys. Thank you, Father, for giving me these guys. And I'm thinking, what a rag. I mean, you got, what, Peter and Andrew, James and John. you got Simon the Zealot. He's a hyper-anti-Roman, you know, uh, ultra-right-wing ultra uh, guy. you got Matthew, who worked for the Romans, a corrupt tax collector. And he loves these guys, and he, he's praising these guys in prayer. He may pray like that for about Andrew Bowers or about Katie Davis. I mean, I've told you many times, when, when Jesus evaluates the fruit of our Christian life, for the purpose of reward, I'm convinced sins and dumb stuff you do don't even come up. That's double jeopardy. Our sins have been forgiven. He's looking for stuff to like, and he's going to find probably a lot more stuff to like in a lot of our Christian lives than we would dare to believe when he can be so generous in grace and say, they have believed, they've kept your word, I've been glorified in them. Well, wow, that's what we want to do, but we all kind of think we don't really do it very well. But based on those standards, there's hope. Mike, there's hope. I think he's going to find a lot to like in you, my man. Verse 11 through 13, Jesus prays that he would keep the 11 strong, that the Father would keep the 11 strong as he departs from them. That's the whole premise of the upper room discourse. I'm about to leave. He says, I'm no longer in the world. Now, right when he says it, he is. But I'm about to leave is the point through this progression. I'm just leaving that up there on purpose. And yet they themselves are going to continue to live in the world where there's going to be tribulation and martyrdom for all of them except for John. And I'm coming back to you, Holy Father. Now what, what, what did Jesus pray in the first five verses? He's praying that he'll go back and get his glory. Now he's just saying he's going to go back and get his glory. So prayer overlaps with the sovereignty of God. They're, they're hand in hand. They work together. They're not uh, mutually exclusive. So I'm coming to you. I'm returning to you. Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. Unity is so important here. Uh, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name. In scripture, name refers to a personal character or, or, or a personal nature uh, and power. So in who you are and what you're doing, I, I kept them kind of on the road there. They made a lot of mistakes, but we love them anyway. Uh, and so I'm coming to you that, uh, while, I was, while, they were with, while I was with them verse 12 I was keeping them in your name which you've given me and I guarded them and not one of them perished but the one guy who never believed at all who was what, what was his name Judas and he left the room back in chapter 13 verse 30 you know at the end of chapter 14 the upper room discourse moves from the upper room to a walk toward Gethsemane in the garden of Gethsemane is where we end up so realize that's a technical term but now, verse thirteen, I'm coming to you, and that means after the death and the resurrection and then the ascension. He's anticipating that. But now I'm about to come to you, and these things I'm speaking, the upper room discourse, so that they may have my joy, kara, which is a lot of times just eye of the hurricane. It's not necessarily ecstatics. So it can be just mere stability in the midst of uh, horrible events around you, made full in themselves. Now look at verse fourteen. He's going to pray that the Father would sanctify them in and through the word. There's a lot of good lessons here for all of us. Uh, I've given them your word. Didn't give them any dancing elephants, no casino nights at church to draw a crowd. And the world has hated them because Jesus is inherently offensive to the world if you define him biblically. Because they're not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world. If he's not asking the Father to take them out of the world, what does that mean? What did he say in 16.33? They're going to face tribulation up to including physical death. All kinds of bad things happen in the domain of darkness. That's where we are right now. Uh, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Just let them stay stable in their faith. They are not of the world even as I am not of the world. I love this next verse, verse 17. If you want a life verse, this is a good one. Sanctify them in the truth Your word is truth. It's Not Reader's Digest, People Magazine, or Oprah Winfrey necessarily. It's gonna be that that stabilizes you, and it's all good. As you sent me into the world, now I'm gonna send them into the world. For their sakes I sanctified myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. I mean, you got Peter and Andrew, James and John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James the less, Judas the greater, Simon the zealot here, and that's, that's the church, basically. And a few scattered believers in the region that have no networking. And none of them have a Facebook page. So how's this, gonna, how's this thing going to take off? It's going to take off by the power of the resurrected Christ using these guys. And if he could use those guys to turn the world upside down, he can use each one of us in our world. And we ought to be turning our worlds upside down. Um, and we can, as long as we keep his name. And we can do that. Uh, I love... Uh, that statement, verse 17. If you want a life verse for me, that's kind of what, what I would say is one of them. You know, somebody somebody write this down. Read this at my funeral. You know, it's kind of one of his things he's trying to do is to get people sanctified, believers sanctified, in the truth. And he emphasized the truth was in the Word of God. Um, and boom. All right, there's so much there you can't believe. You know, this this was a strange week for me, but on Monday I had like 18 hours worth of stuff on this passage. I've winded it down to 52 minutes, and I know that's seven more than you want. So, <laughs> but sorry. Yeah, but let me end up uh, this way. And, and we'll come back to the, to the amazing ending of this, verse 20 through 26 next week, and we're going to see that Jesus prays for Amanda Birch, for Rick Schallemeier, for uh, Ken Wanzer in those verses specifically, and we'll show you how that works next week. But I would just say, hey, just remember this, the importance that Jesus placed on prayer underscores the importance of prayer. In this chapter, and this will never change, Riley, this is the real Lord's prayer. This is you watching, listening to Jesus pray. And uh, you can see how important it is to him, and therefore it really ought to be very important to us. But uh, as I close, I'd say, beyond all the little individual lessons I've tried to pull out, uh, he's emphasizing in his prayer that Christianity is not just another philosophy of life or another world religion. It's an out-of-this-world faith designed to be lived out in the world now, even though all kinds of bad things happen to good people in the real world. All kinds of things. You're not immune from anything, but everything that happens is filtered through God's hand. He's either allowing you to have input that will make you stronger or that will straighten out some of the impurities or both. He's got a sanctified thumb on all the events that hit individual Christians. And a big part of us not flaking out and freaking out and doubting, pouting, and dropping outing is remaining in fellowship through prayer. I'd say pretty consistent structured prayer where you're getting the uh, kind of plugging back into the wall. Uh, If you have a real refrigerator but unplug it, what's going to happen to the food after a couple of days? It's going to spoil, Right? So do you come back and say, well, that must must not have been a refrigerator. It must be a TV set because it's not keeping the food uh, cold because refrigerators keep food cold. Yeah, if they're plugged in. He can't be a Christian. He did X. Really? Uh, Christians can do all the dumb things the world can do when we're not plugged in. We conceal who we are. We don't reveal it, right? But when I see refrigerators unplugged, which has never happened in my whole life. But if it ever happened, I would just out of goodness of my heart, I'd, out of goodness of my heart, I'd go plug it in for whomever. You know, you guys, when you're cleaning carpets, you may find somebody's refrigerator unplugged refrigerator unplugged. Please plug it in for them. You know, uh, but yeah. So we're living uh, an out-of-this-world faith in a world full of bad, evil stuff, and the world interprets it all one way. We've got the possibility to interpret it accurately, but a big part of that is being, you know having an active communion with our Lord through a dynamic prayer such as the one we've just begun to study. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we need your grace to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our toil is not in vain in the Lord. And a big part of that uh, is relying on you by communicating intimately with you w- with real intense prayer like the one we're reading here. Uh, And if our Lord Jesus was so dependent on prayer, how in the world can we minimize it or neglect it? And I I have, and I'm sure most of us probably have at some point. So forgive us for that, but help us to be encouraged today. As we draw close to you in prayer, I believe you're going to give us all the power we need to do anything you ask us to do. And each one of us will have different opportunities, different temptations, different pressures, different problems, but I've got to believe you've got a plan tailor-made to each one of us, whether we're teenagers or senior citizens, and I pray that a big part of that uh, takes place and is successful and fruitful as we pray like Jesus prayed. So help us to, to pray like Jesus prayed, like it really matters. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.